Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Across Story Lands. I'm your host, Rodana Manchester, a Canadian-born writer, travel advisor, and anthropology enthusiast. Each week, this podcast will feature themes around travel, culture, and the human condition. But first, I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the ancestral, traditional, and unceded territory of the Squamish Nation, proud descendants of the Coast Salish Aboriginal peoples. Now that we've acknowledged the ancestors and living keepers of this great land, let's dive in. This story's interpretation was a bit of a collaboration between myself and a woman named Grace I met on a writer's retreat in Washington about seven years ago. When this project idea came about, she was one of the first people I reached out to. I remembered she had been on the retreat to try and overcome her writer's block and finish a family biography that she'd been working on. She never wanted to publish it, but she just wanted to finish it for her own satisfaction and so her family could read it. The biography was about her aunt Senna, But she had mentioned her grandmother numerous times, and I remember she had led quite the life. This is an incredible story, so please enjoy. Love in the Age of Color, Velma and Gordon's story, shared by Grace, Velma's granddaughter. My grandmother was born just outside of Cape Town in the age of the steam engine. The year of her birth saw the first commercial flight from Cape Town to London. Can you imagine such a thing? But the 1920s weren't glamorous. They were an exceptionally tumultuous time for non-whites in South Africa, especially if you were of mixed race. Velma's caramel-colored skin, long, silky raven black hair, and bright green eyes were indicative of her Indian, Zulu, and Dutch roots. A deadly combination, quite literally. Indians were scorned and heavily discriminated against as much as blacks were at the time. They were banned certain rights after the Anti-Indian Act was passed and they weren't permitted to work alongside white Afrikaans in the unions. And while this was going on, blacks were being abused and murdered and ousted from any political positions they might have held in their own government, on their own lands. It was a dark, uncertain, horrible time to come into the world as a non-white. My grandma Velma was a rare beauty but also a pariah in her community because of her upbringing. She was raised by a poor, single mother and a housemaid, a product of a forbidden coupling herself. No one would marry my great-grandmother because of her mixed heritage, and my great-grandfather had been a government official who walked out on her life just as soon as he walked in. Nonetheless, my great-grandmother managed to make ends meet, cleaning the houses of white Afrikaans, and she scraped enough money together to send my grandmother to school where she excelled. My grandma Velma eventually went on to study law at the University of Cape Town. There were a couple of teachers in her formative years that saw her potential and helped her get scholarships so she could attend post-secondary. It's really quite astounding to think of where she started and where she ended up, but even more astounding that she was a woman of color, of mixed race, who fought racism and sexual discrimination and still managed to graduate in the top three of her class. During her final year of university, She was having lunch one day with a friend, and the handsome, blue-eyed, blonde-haired leader of the debate team approached her and asked her if she would take a walk with him sometime. Now, my great-grandmother had given my grandmother two very important pieces of advice before she sent her off to study. Number one, don't get involved in politics. And number two, don't get distracted by boys. South Africa was a seething, racially-driven, misogynistic landscape for a woman of color, 
especially one of mixed race and the wrong race. And as for boys, my great-grandmother was terrified that Velma would end up like her, pregnant, destitute, and uneducated with no future. So when my grandfather siloed up to my grandmother on this cool spring day, he represented everything her mother had warned her about. Grandma Velma was terrified. She said she tried to shoo him away like some kind of vermin, but he was persistent. He came back each day to that same lunch spot, and when that didn't work, he came looking for her in the library and interrupted her studies. Gordon was arrogant, she had said. Used his whiteness to try and get his way, and I saw right through it. But then he began slipping her love letters, which she had to hide from her mom. They were so beautiful, so eloquent, she had said. He wasn't the arrogant boy I thought he was. It was an act in front of his mates, she had said. He was kind and gentle, but none of it mattered. He was white and I was colored. The letter writing went on for a couple more months and Grandma Velma still wouldn't grant Grandpa an audience. Finally, one day, Great Grand was cleaning in Velma's room and found a stack of letters in one of her drawers. When Velma came home from school one day, Great Grand was in the sitting room with a pot of tea and biscuits and a stack of letters sitting on the table, tapping her foot angrily. Velma was terrified to sit down. Even though she was almost 23 years old, she stood in front of her great-grand like a young child and tried to explain the letters away. Apparently, they spoke into the night, and at the end, great-grand told Velma to invite the boy over. He must have made an impression, because great-grand permitted Grandpa Gordon to take her out for ice cream, but only once her final exams were complete. And he respected the request. And he did take her out. A year after they met, Grandpa Gordon, an engineering graduate, went to work in southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, for six months. It wasn't until after he returned and proposed to my grandma that he told his own family that Velma wasn't white. They forbid him to see her again, and he refused. They married in a very quiet ceremony in a little stone church in the township of Langa. With news of apartheid brewing and violence escalating, and Grandpa's family closing in, the fear of being torn apart drove my grandfather to secure two tickets to Southampton on the RMS Warwick Castle, a steamship. And even though they were married, they weren't even allowed to travel in the same class. Nonetheless, they arrived in Southampton, stayed for a month with an aunt of my grandfather's in Cornwall, and hopped another steamship for New York. They had four children, including my mother. And after losing my grandfather in 2016, we said goodbye to my grandmother in February of this year, right before the pandemic stopped us all in our tracks. And in so many ways, we're so grateful that she went before it happened. She lived for visits from her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren. She was 95 years old and lived the most extraordinary life. They both did. They traveled the world together, lived in eight different countries, backpacked Iran in the 1950s and lived in the American South trading apartheid for the German Crow laws and lived all through the upheaval during the civil rights era. My grandmother taught international law in Germany while my grandfather looked after the children. They also lived in France and New Zealand. They were married for over 70 years. They were the bedrock of our family. We still have all the love letters grandpa wrote to grandma Velma and I hope to publish them one day into a memoir for her grandchildren and great-grandchildren.
Love Interrupted, Patrick and Fiona's Story. Patrick and Fiona are in the home stretch of finalizing the adoption of a little boy. They tried for over a decade to have children. Fiona had been in a terrible car accident while traveling in Turkey in her 20s, and it caused what they now understand to be irreparable damage. I met Patrick a few years after the accident on a work trip to Berlin, she said. He was one of the accountants on the project, and we just clicked. We had an unusually candid dinner where the topic of raising a family came up. I was so impressed by how open he was about his past and what he wanted for his future, so I swallowed my fear and I confided in him that I didn't think I could have children. I will never forget his response. I didn't ask you to dinner because of your uterus. I asked you because I want to spend the rest of my life listening to that laugh. Yep, this corporate steel-hearted lawyer cried like a baby in the middle of a Michelin star restaurant. He said, there are plenty of other ways to make a family. Don't worry about it. We'll make it work. I wanted to marry him then and there. But I'm not crazy. So we dated long distance for six months. Then we eloped and got married in Scotland, where Patrick is originally from. Okay, okay, maybe I'm a little crazy for marrying a man I only knew for six months, but I don't know, he, he's different. He's special. She laughed. Even after we were married, we lived apart. I had this great job at a law firm in New York, and Patrick was an accountant for an international firm based in Toronto. It was a job that saw him traveling twice a month to Hong Kong and London. Our life was crazy. And within a few months, I got sick of it. So I packed up my shoe closet of an apartment in Manhattan and I moved to Toronto to officially start my life with Patrick. We started working on trying to have a family right away. IVF, IUI, we even had a surrogate, but she lost the baby and there were further challenges. It was a long, frustrating, heartbreaking road. Two years ago, we looked into adoption, and what a minefield that was. But our adoption lawyer put us in touch with an agency in Philadelphia who had a little boy named Caden that was in need of a family. Adoption's a rigorous process, and so it should be. But endless interviews, home checks, salary verifications, criminal record checks, employer references, family references, references from friends, more interviews, and of course, there's the cost. But you know what? None of that mattered. He didn't care. There's a little, beautiful, blue-eyed boy who needed a mom and a dad, and we wanted him desperately. But COVID has halted everything. Because of the travel bans, we're not, we're not able to go see him, and he's not able to come home with us. He's in a foster home right now, and his foster parents have fallen madly in love with him. And we're so happy that he's happy, but we're scared. We spent nearly a year traveling back and forth. We celebrated a birthday with him, Christmas. We feel like he's ours. We're playing the waiting game right now. And though we understand the travel bans are necessary, we just want to bring Caden home before his fifth birthday so we can start kindergarten, you know, and get settled in. We want to take him to Scotland to meet Patrick's family in the new year. Please tell your listeners to cross their fingers and send us positive vibes. We just want to bring Caden home. This next story doesn't have a travel component to it, but it does answer the first question I asked my storytellers when I was first putting this project together. And that was, how is the pandemic affecting their relationships? If you're a single parent and isolation has made co-parenting a challenge, this might be an interesting story for you. I do know the storyteller, but she's asked that I change the names of the story to protect the identity of all those involved. So here we go. For the boys, by Anonymous.
Do you have any idea what it's like to live with someone you don't like, Jordana? As I listened to my storyteller on the phone, I was nodding quietly to myself, thinking, Yeah, I've been there. I know what it's like. I could hear the shrieks and giggles of her two children in the background. Mom's on the phone, so keep it down. Hey, don't jump off of that. Finish your schoolwork before that television goes on, she scolded. Sorry. Welcome to the chaos. She half laughed and half sighed. She was making her way upstairs to her room to steal a few moments of privacy so she could share her tale with me over the phone. As a working mom myself who rather suddenly had to go back to full-time toddler duty while juggling a business in chaos, I was all too familiar with the never-ending interrupted phone calls, interrupted adult conversations, and interrupted routines once my own family had to go into isolation. COVID-19 has wreaked havoc on families the world over, especially mothers. Many of us have either had to step back from our careers or sideline our businesses and step back into the roles of primary childcare. Without the support of daycares and only one income for many, there's few options left. But Jennifer, my storyteller, is in an, in an even more challenging predicament. Jennifer is currently living in isolation with her estranged ex-husband. My friends think I'm absolutely nuts, and I'm not going to lie, this has been the most difficult two months of my life. But probably the best two months for our sons, she continues. We've been divorced for three years, and it wasn't a friendly divorce, you know that. I won't go into detail, but let's just say there was an uninvited third person that I didn't even realize was a part of our marriage, if you know what I'm saying. The first few holidays were brutal. Lots of fighting, blaming, nitpicking, resentment. We barely respected each other. I had the boys during the week, and he had them on the weekends. The most heartbreaking part of it all was that our boys didn't understand why we didn't live under the same roof anymore. They were 7 and 10 when we first split. When COVID hit in March, the boys and I were set to fly to Mexico for spring break with my family, and as you know, that all went to hell. Our trip was canceled, and to make matters worse, after two weeks of dealing with two very heartbroken and disappointed young boys acting out, I was laid off from my job of 22 years. I had a mortgage to pay, bills, car payments, the boys' activities, orthodontic payments. You know how it is. It's like the whole world falls out from beneath you. I had two parents in long-term care facilities, so that was a concern. And then there was my ex-husband, who wasn't helpful on the best of days. He's a business analyst who works in downtown Vancouver and lives with his girlfriend in Yaletown. My ex had been away on a work trip and had to go into quarantine when he got back, so the boys couldn't see him. Not that I was even half ready to send them down to the city during this mess. When the ex's quarantine was over, his office closed down and he had to work from home. It was good in a way because it meant he wasn't leaving the house as much and risking exposure to the boys. But his girlfriend is a nurse and I just, I just couldn't risk it. One of our sons has severe asthma. So I texted my ex a couple of days before he was supposed to pick up the boys and I asked him what he thought about staying with us until quarantine was over. I knew it was unfair to deprive the boys of their dad. Their girlfriend was a frontline worker and I couldn't very well ask her to move out of her own home. This was the only way. At first he told me, hell no. And I thought we are going to have another war of roses. But by the weekend, he had a change of heart. And with full support of his girlfriend, who I now speak to regularly and I have a newfound respect for, he moved into our spare room and works from my home. He helps the boys with their homework, takes them out on hikes and bike rides, and gets to see their everyday routines. It's been a wonderful bonding experience for the three of them. And I'm not going to pretend like it's been a fairy tale. I had lots of ground rules when he first moved in, but the boys are thriving. 
and the ex and I have sat down and hashed out a lot of garbage from the past. It's been cathartic. I'm convinced that ending our marriage was the right thing to do, but I'm also proud of us for being able to set aside our differences and come together for our boys. You never know what life is going to throw your way, and the way I see it, you can choose conflict, or you can choose peace. I chose this person to have my boys with, and despite what's happened in the past, it's my job as her mom to nurture that relationship, to uphold it, to protect it. At the end of the day, I feel like it was the right decision. I hope you enjoyed these three stories and a heartfelt thank you to those who submitted them. I hope I did them justice as always. I really hope Grace, Velma's granddaughter, publishes that memoir about her grandmother because she is truly a fascinating human that we really need to learn more about. Fiona and Patrick, Caden will be in your arms and home before you know it. I know that will happen for you. And to my last storyteller, if someone hasn't told you today, you are an amazing mom who showed courage and leadership within your family at a critical time. Your boys are lucky to have you, and I hope your ex-husband realizes what an exceptional friend and ally he could have in you. Wishing you all the best of luck. Now, I just want to switch gears for a moment and talk a bit about what to expect in the coming weeks here on Across Storied Lands. As the world slowly begins to open up and countries begin to welcome back international tourists, my role as a travel advisor has expanded from service provider and human guidebook to include that of a health and safety advocate. I've been answering questions I've never had to answer before and engaging in more meaningful dialogue with colleagues over the past few months than I have over the course of my 15-year career. Never before has my industry been at a complete collective standstill, and with the current political climate and tensions on the rise around the world in regards to who gets to travel where, there's so much to unpack. Over the course of the next few weeks, I'd like to talk about the return to travel and what that might look like, and also answer why many of us in the adventure and culture-focused sectors think we just can't go back to the way that it was. I'd like to talk about myths surrounding the travel advisors and have an honest conversation about our image as professionals. And eventually, I'd like to talk about health and mental health on the road and bring in some other professionals in and around my field to join the conversation. So if you're itching to get back on the road or just want to listen to some of the conversations that are being had around the industry, I hope you'll check back and join me as we make our way back to travel. that's it for this week's episode of Across Storied Lands. If you have questions about this episode or have a suggestion for future topics, or if you are a travel professional, you could be an advisor, a blogger, or a writer, a member of a tourism board, a tour guide, or a supplier, I would love to include your thoughts on an upcoming episode. So please feel free to send me an email at jordana at storiedlandstravel.com. Or if you're listening to me on Anchor, you can leave me a voicemail. I'm proud to say my podcast is now available on seven different platforms, including Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Radio Public, and Spotify. I know many of you are listening to me on Spotify, so hit that subscribe button so you're notified the moment an episode drops. And if you've been enjoying the content here on Across the Road Lands, please leave a review or share with a friend. Thanks again, and remember, in a world where you could be anything, be kind.